mindfulness mode. There is no point in getting annoyed with somebody because they're not moving as fast as you would like. Hey, Mindful Tribe, welcome to the show. Today, we're going to talk about Google. We're going to talk about SEO, getting found online. We're going to talk about those kinds of business things, but we're also going to talk about, as usual, mindfulness. We're going to talk about music and how that's part of mindfulness. But I'm here with a really interesting and fun guest. I'm here with Jason Barnard. Jason, are you in mindfulness mode today? I wasn't. But since I started talking to you, I am. Ah, that's good to know. Yeah, we've had a really <laughs> nice little pre-interview chat. And all of a sudden, it's like, hey, we better hit record because this is all good stuff. <laughs> and uh, it's so great to talk to you and, and to learn a little bit about you. And well, let's Brilliant. start with this. What does mindfulness mean to you, Jason? Yeah, I, I was looking at that question earlier on and thinking about all the different things that come to mind when I think about mindfulness and we were just talking about music and I'd like to dig into that a little bit because it's an interesting concept and interesting thing that I hadn't really thought about in terms yeah. of why I play music and how I play music. Yeah. Um, but generally speaking, I look at it as being hyper aware of what's actually happening in the moment and hyper aware of the people around you and how they feel. And I'm actually told that I tend to do that too much. I think about too much about how other people are experiencing what's going on. And I obviously have no idea. So one thing I need to do to be more mindful is to be mindful of the fact that I don't know right. what other people are thinking, how other people are feeling. That's true. We can't assume, that's for sure. Well, let's yeah. talk about music. You've done music for a long time. Tell us about your experience being a musician. Yeah, I, I was a punk folk double bass player in France, where I live now. Uh, I moved from the UK and joined a band and became uh, a professional punk folk musician. And we made a very bad living, but we still made a living. And I actually, at the time, thought that I wasn't really a musician. I was just playing for the show. I wanted to be on stage and I wanted to make people happy. And I wanted that experience. And when you're playing a gig, you're really in the moment yeah. of what you're doing and how it affects other people. Yeah. And turns out I am actually quite a good musician. But at the time, I was simply there for the show and the experience of seeing a crowd of people enjoying what we were doing and taking them on a journey with us with our music. Right. That's fascinating. Did you have a, a tough time at first when you got in front of big crowds on the stage? Did you feel nervousness? How did you deal with, with that experience? Well, that's a, an interesting question. So I talked to the drummer who is a seriously very, 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 very good drummer. And he would feel sick before a concert and feel so nervous that he would feel sick. And I was going, you've got no reason to feel nervous. You're so good. And he said, but if I don't feel nervous, I can't play. That's part of my makeup in terms of how I get on stage. I never felt nervous. And I don't know whether it's because it's a natural place for me to be or a natural thing for me to be doing, or because we played a lot in the street before I got on to the bigger stages. And playing in the street is actually more stressful because you have to give a real show because you have to get people to stop when they're going about their busy lives. So, Playing in the street was 
actually more difficult than playing in front of 5,000 people at one point. And now today you still have a band, you still perform, you still practice. And if you don't get a performance to play, what do you do then? You told me in the pre-interview chat. <laughs> yeah, we used to call it the garage party in French, La Fête de Garage. Yeah. Uh, and I moved out of the flat that had the garage and I, we used to fill the garage up with our friends and it got up to 200 people in the end about three years ago before COVID. Yeah. And... I remember very, very clearly the very last garage party uh, at the end of 2018. We had 200 people in the garage. I was playing music with Hugo uh, in a band called Barcoustic. And I saw people dancing with a smile up to here, just so happy. Yeah. And for me, that was a moment that's completely stuck in my mind. And that was a moment where I would say I was mindful in the middle of this massive party with people jumping up and down whilst playing music, this snapshot of giving people that pleasure, bringing them together uh, to listen to the music. And what was lovely as well is that in the village where we are, which is about 5,000 people, there are lots of clans of people who don't really mix with each other. Mm. And yet we managed to get, you know, five or six different clans all together. And I felt hugely proud and happy yeah. to have been able to welcome these people who never re usually talk to each other, even though they see each other in the street, you know, once a week. I and take now, it you're an extrovert. Yeah, I tend to be quite extroverted and quite annoying, I think, as well. Uh, um, <laughs> now I've got a terrace, so we can't do it quite as big a party, but it's a terrace party. And last time we had about 60 people. Right. Sounds like so much fun. Does anything ever turn bad or nasty or you get neighbor complaints or anything like that? Um, we had some wants, but generally speaking, um, I am mindful of the neighbors and we don't play too light. We don't play too loud. I actually had somebody who come up, came up to you at the party and said, turn the music up. I oh, said, well, turn no, it up. It's all, it's, yeah, it's already loud enough. And he said, but if you just turn it up, turn it up, turn it up, wait till they call the police, then you know what the limit is. Oh, yeah. Going, Why would I do that? <laughs> the music's perfectly loud as it is. Everybody's having a good time. Everyone can hear it. Yeah. Um, and his theory was just that if you push people to their limits, you find where the limits are, and then you know how far you can go. And I didn't get on board with that. Not your philosophy, right? No. <laughs> not at all um and we actually had the neighbor who leaned out the window of the, the the first party we did in this new place and uh they they said oh music and they looked happy so i said to them come on down and join the party and they said oh we haven't got a babysitter but next time definitely and then shut the window and that was it and they're invited to the next party that's cool that's really fun. Uh, most music musicians who have done as much playing as you have some really, really interesting stories about being on the road and doing all yeah. these. Do you have any stories that pop into your head that might be somehow related to mindfulness? Um, I think, I mean, being in the van is one of the things that people don't think about. Because if you see a band, you see them play on stage. Let's say we're in front of 500 people. Lots of people dancing around, everyone's having a party. And then you don't think that yesterday we were in a completely different town and we've just driven five or 600 kilometers, set up the equipment, had dinner, and now we're playing a gig. Then we'll have a party, sleep for four or five hours, get up, get in the van and drive another five or 600 kilometers. 
And so every day you're driving 500 kilometers, let's say, and in a year we would drive over 100,000 kilometers. You have to learn to sit in the van and be very, very, very bored. Yeah. And so it gives you a great deal of, t t great deal of time, excuse me, to think. Yeah. And do you meditate? Is that part of your life? No, I've been, sorry, I've been told. Somebody had suggested to me that it would be very, very good for me, but I find it very difficult to stop my mind twirling. Mm -hmm. um, but one of the things that I did learn was that um, I was in Mauritius um, and had some problems and fell into uh, quite serious clinical depression. Um, and one of the things that happened was that my mind would just race and go around in circles and go down these terrible rabbit holes and I couldn't or felt I couldn't pull it back. And one of the things that I learned, and it might be called meditation, but I, I wouldn't classify it as such, was to learn to stop it. And it was really interesting because you your, your mind starts racing down the hole, you stop it for a, a millisecond and it comes back to the start and then it starts again. And I remember thinking, this is I'm never going to be able to stop it because it only stops for a millisecond and it, it isn't enough. But little by little, you stop it for a tiny bit longer. And then after a while, you manage to stop it for, let's say, a minute. And then that's when you can start to recover. So for me, the mindfulness was being aware that my brain was running away with itself and pulling it back systematically over a period of three or four months. So that depressive state, did that really only happen one time to you? Or is that something that you experience from time to time? It's happened very, very seriously once. And it's come back to haunt me twice more. Um, but one of the interesting things, I think, is once you've been right down to the bottom of that hole, you know where it is and uh, makes it easier for you to understand that it isn't something that should control your life it isn't something you should let dominate you but it is something that you need to accept to a certain extent um and from my perspective knowing where the bottom was for me means that i can stay away from it now yeah and what's your first move do you go toward music and think, oh, well, this is the way I'm feeling, but now I'm just going to play some music or something like that? I would love to say yes, but it isn't. Um, music does help, but it's hugely difficult for me to, to, to take action. The first thing I need to do is do small actions. Yeah. So um, if, if I, well, when I was in the, terrible state in Mauritius, it was doing one thing. And in French, we would say célébrer, which mm -hmm. literally means to celebrate, but it doesn't mean jump up and down, but be proud of the fact that you've done something. And even if the rest of the day is pretty terrible, every day you've got something that you can celebrate or be joyful about or be proud or confident or happy or positive about. Yeah, and music really helps us to do that a lot of times. But music can help us reach all the different emotions at times too, can it? Yeah, I, I find singing is 
is the number one best thing for that. And singing at the top of my lungs, I mean, I've got quite a deep voice and I can sing in tune and I, I'm a singer. Yeah. So I can, I can sing and that does immediately bring positive emotion. As long as you're not singing terrible blues songs, not terrible bad, uh, as in bad, but, you know, some depressing blues depressing, songs. Depressing, discouraging, yes. But I wrote some songs for kids. So one thing I did was sing those to myself. Oh, did you ever make an album of a, of songs for kids? Yeah, yeah, I made two. Uh, after the, the punk folk music career, I then had a cartoon career where I was a blue dog in a cartoon. And my oh, ex yeah. was a yellow koala. Yeah, a lot of people have probably seen that. Tell us about that. Yeah, I mean, Boo Koala, Big Blue Dog, Little Yellow Koala. Um, oh, yes. And it was games and songs and animations and a TV series and two music albums. And I wrote, I think, 96 songs for, for kids, some of which are rather good and some of which are fairly appalling, yeah. uh, as you would expect. <laughs> um, but they all have one thing in common is that they're very cheerful. And I think by nature, deep down, that's exactly what I am and who I am. And uh, the the fact of being able to sing them and that they mean something to me was usually helpful. Right. And so am I right that series is called In the Naughties? No, no, no. That, sorry, that, that's me trying to be funny. It's called Oh, Buwa that's you Koala. being funny. Okay, tell me more then. <laughs> the it's series called is called what? Koala. Buwa and Koala, sorry. Oh, okay. I see. And can we find that, like on YouTube or something? Yeah, there are a few episodes on YouTube. There are lots of the songs on YouTube. So if you just search Buwa and Koala, B-O-O-W-A and okay. K-W-A-L-A, uh, you'll find songs of Buwa and Koala and animations. And um, it, it's really, really sweet and really lovely. And I think brought positive energy to the world, um, which is something I'm hugely proud of. Well, you spent 12 years on a desert island. Now, yeah. mind you, it's not, not a tiny desert island, right? But tell well, us about that experience and what it did for you. Yeah, well, that was making the Blue Dog cartoons. Oh, that's um, when you made that, okay. Because we, it was in 2000 when everyone was saying you can go anywhere in the world and run an internet company. And we just spun the globe and picked Mauritius, which is a tropical island off the coast of Madagascar. Yes. So it's all beaches all the way around with palm trees and lovely little houses and delightful, cheerful, welcoming people, uh, some really good food, some really great times. But 12 years on a tropical island got a bit boring, I have to say. But was it mindful? It was actually, yes. I think it was a combination of, it's sunny almost all the time. Yeah. The people are incredibly kind and generous. And we were making cartoons for kids. Um, and we brought up our daughter in that atmosphere. And it was an atmosphere for most of the 12 years of calm and idyllic existence whilst producing an immense amount of great content for kids. So it was a strange combination of feeling relaxed feeling happy and creating vast amounts of content, working incredibly hard, but never really feeling the strain. 
That's incredible. What do you think that did for your daughter? And what did it do for her as a person as she grew up in that environment? I don't think she could have wished for a better childhood. Uh, sunny all year round, kind and gentle people, as I said. She was naturally very cheerful. We were very present as parents. And she helped us with the cartoons. So she was part of our work. And we were also a great um, part of her life because there were lots of things going on and because we had the time. Uh, for some reason, we had an immense amount of time. And I seem to remember people telling me after your childhood, when you have, when you think you have or you feel you have immense amounts of time, so much that you get very bored, that never happens again. And now I think about it, now you ask about it, that time in Mauritius did feel like I had that childhood time back. Yeah, that sounds like an amazing existence and for the and for so long. Like some people yep. maybe go to a place like that for one or two years, but you were there for 12 years. Yeah, and as you said, for my daughter, that was her whole childhood. We got there yes. when she was three and we left when she was 15. And yeah. so she had that perfect period of time from three when you start to understand the world around you to 15 when you don't want to be stuck on a desert island and you want to be going out with friends in Paris or uh, in Nîmes in the south of France, then she got the perfect timing and it was um, worked out beautifully from that perspective. So she then got back to Europe and, and got the pleasures of a busy city life, having made the most of a tropical island for 12, 13 years. Well, now you work with Google, or at least you work on CEO to help people get found on Google. Mm. And it's, it sounds like you have a really interesting approach and you tell people to think of Google as a child. Tell us about yeah. that. Yeah, right. Well, if, if you look at what Google's trying to do, it's trying to satisfy its users when its users ask it a question or um, it, um, explain a problem. So if you're searching on Google, you're looking to the solution for a problem or the answer to a question. And in order to answer that question, it needs to understand who has the answer. So we need to educate it that we have the answer. So from Google's perspective, it's a hungry child or a child hungry for knowledge rather, who wants to understand everything about you. And if you want Google the child to send its users to you as the solution to their problem or the answer to their question, you need to educate it about what you can provide as an answer, why you're a credible solution, and indicate to it that you have the content or the, um, the information that the person is looking for. Right. And you're known as the brand SERP guy s-e-r-p now some of my listeners may not know what s-e-r-p is you can tell us right yeah s-e-r-p is search engine results page yes so it's the page you see on google when you search and a brand serp is the search engine results page for your brand name or your personal name so it's like your google business card and there, educating google really comes into its own because there what you're trying to do is educate google what content, what information is interesting and pertinent and helpful to your audience so that it can present you to your audience when they Google your name in the best possible light. So when you work with a business 
to get found online this way. What are some of the first things you do? What's your approach? The first thing we do is look at their digital footprint. We collect all of the information about them that's out all around on the web, especially their social profiles, their website, and uh, articles they might have published. And for a company, articles about the company, review platforms, so on and so forth, so that we have an idea of what a mess they've made of it, because everybody has made a mess of their digital footprint, and we clean that up. I Which see. means that what we do is clarify for this child that is Google what it is it needs to understand about the person or the company. And then, of course, we work on the website to make sure that the website is incredibly clear about who they are, what they do, and which audience they serve. And why, indeed, Google should choose them, why they're a credible solution for the user in the wider sense of SEO. But when focusing on the brand SERP, that search engine results page for your brand name or your personal name, we're simply trying to get Google to represent you the way you intend to be represented. So your brand narrative and your brand message is presented by Google in the way that you wish. So is this as much fun for you as playing a character, a cartoon character in a TV show? Strangely enough, yes, it is. Um, I loved being in a band, standing on stage, playing the double bass, punk folk, absolutely brilliant. I loved being a blue dog. That was so much fun. Uh, and both of those are things that I would do again if I had the opportunity. But working on Google, since I figured out that if we treat it like a child, it becomes an educational exercise and I become the teacher and I can mm -hmm. teach this child, I find it infinitely fascinating how we can place information so this child understands and that it's confidence in its understanding. And trying to figure that out is, it's like music, in fact. Is it something that you might be very good at, but you will never fully master because the goalposts are constantly moving? And with music, however good you get, you can keep getting better and you can keep finding new depths to it. And I found the same with the blue dog and the yellow koala. And that's the, the, the similarity. Those are the three things that I know I will always want to do. Play double bass and sing, be a blue dog in a cartoon or make videos, and figure out how to educate Google about who we are, what we do, and which audience we serve. And one of the things, well, the thing I like the most about it is I have a database of brand SERPs and data from Google of about a billion data points. And I dig into the data and try and figure out how it all fits together. So it's trying to figure out how this child's brain works, how this machine functions. That's hugely interesting. And I don't think I'll ever get tired of it. Right. That's very interesting. Well, before COVID, I know that you traveled a lot, you spoke at a lot of conferences, and you got around all over the world. Has that resumed now? Well, not really, no. I've kind of slowed down on that. I was traveling full time. I was a digital nomad for two years, mm -hmm. and that was hugely fun. And then COVID hit, and what was interesting is that COVID hit. I had to stop, and I realized a couple of months later I was about to go bankrupt Oh, because I was on my own making money as a, as a consultant. Um, I didn't have CaliCube as a company at the time. Uh, although CaliCube exists since 2015, I wasn't working on it actively. I was just maintaining it, and I was working for clients directly as a consultant. And so COVID saved my company, which is great. Oh. 
So the positive thing from COVID. Uh, It also gave gave me the opportunity because I didn't have a home. I asked my daughter if I could live with her. So I lived with her for a year and a half. Um, as she's grown up. And so as a father, living with your grown-up daughter and actually getting on incredibly well together in her flat, sleeping behind the sofa for a year and a half was a huge honour and, and a great pleasure for me. Um, and she enjoyed it too. I mean, I think I think it, it was good for both of us because of the COVID situation. Um, being on your own is not would have been would have been a very, very difficult, tough time. Yes. Um, and then after COVID, I thought, well, do I really want to go back on the road? And the answer was no. So I set up a team. And now K-Cube is a 12-person team. And we work incredibly well together. And that's moving forward really, really nicely. And it's the other thing I really like about K-Cube is the team. And is that team local or is it located all over the world? Um Almost all of them are in the Philippines, but they're scattered all over the Philippines. Um, we, we've been working two years now with, with the team. We just had a meetup in the, in the Philippines with a couple of days of everybody meeting everybody else for the first time, everybody's working remotely. Uh, and that was absolutely brilliant. It was really, really, really delightful. Um, and what we've managed to do, I think, the last year and a half, especially, but definitely the last six to eight months, is become a real team, as mm. opposed to a bunch of people working together. Um, that idea that where, I mean, if we come back to mindfulness, is everybody being mindful of everybody else's role, where they fit into the entire picture and what they bring to the edifice, let's say, that is Cali Cube. And I've seen, well, for me at least, it's become hugely more enjoyable as people take on more responsibility and also work as a whole team. I can feel the whole team moving together towards the goals that we set ourselves. Um, and it, it really is everybody paying attention to everybody else, caring about the other people, thinking about their needs, thinking about how each person can help the others, uh, whilst also obviously completing and, and maintaining their responsibilities. Um, I'm, yeah, I'm super happy <laughs> with, with that. And it does make yeah. the whole process of CaliQ much, much, much more fun to have a team of people, like-minded people working together properly. Right, yeah. And uh, it sounds like it's a great opportunity for people who really want to have their business have a better profile on on Google. I know that your website is calicube.com, K-A-L-I-C-U-B-E.com. And I also know that when you traveled, you traveled with a red backpack and you're wearing a red (laughs) shirt. What does the color red mean to you, Jason? I'd love to say it had an incredibly deep meaning, but it doesn't. (laughs) Um, It's actually a very silly story where I was playing on stage and I was wearing a red shirt that somebody had lent me. Underneath the red shirt, I had a blue T-shirt, which is what I generally wear. And it was a joke. And I took the red shirt off and threw it to the person in the crowd. And somebody videoed the entire concert. And I was watching the, the video and I thought, I look really fun and exciting in the red shirt. And as soon as I take it off, I kind of disappear and I'm suddenly not as interesting on stage. And from that day on, I thought every time I'm on stage, I will always wear 
a red shirt. Well, that's a great story. And you do seem to have that personality that just fits with the color red. I will say that. Oh, right. Yeah. Somebody told me, uh, isn't red a bit scary for people? Because you're already quite extroverted and overexcited. And I go like this a lot and get terribly overexcited. And they red just adds to it. And I can't say, I don't know, really. Like, once again, I can't speak for how other people. Well, for me, it just fits together. It. it fits. Oh, right. Brilliant. Yeah. That's what I think. Well, I want to ask you about bullying. Do you have a story about bullying where mindfulness would have made a difference, either childhood or could be an adult situation, any kind of story that resonates? Um, yeah. Uh, my, uh, sometimes in, in personal life and business as well, I feel that I've been bullied by somebody and it's, more along the lines of manipulation, but manipulation is a kind of bullying. And it, yes, it is. It's it's psychologically very violent, and it doesn't seem violent. It seems absolutely fine. It seems like normal behaviour. And what I it's a, nor, a, a normal relationship. But I feel bullied, and if I am mindful of the fact that I don't want to do what they're pushing me to do and can just say, well, actually, no, this is, this is, this is what I need. This is what I want. Uh, I would be much better off. So it's something I'm trying to learn to do, but I think for all of us, uh, once you're at my age, at least, um, you're not going to change fundamentally. And also, uh, I read this book. I mean, you, you, you had in your notes recommend a book. Yeah, for sure. And Confucius from the heart, um, is a book that I read that helped me a great deal with that of the Confucius in this book, at least. So they, the, the way they're talking about it is you let people in to your existence and it's up to you whether you let them in or not. And that kind of person who I would say is bullying through manipulation, I can have the choice of just closing the door and saying, well, you're not coming into my life. Right. And that's something hugely important of being mindful of the fact that they're trying to invade a space that you don't want them in and that you have the right to say no. Yeah. Jason, who's the author of that book? You, uh, Dan. Okay. And is it called Confucius from the Heart? Oh, yeah, it is. Yeah. Confucius from the Heart. Yes, you, Dan, Y-U, and then D-A-N. I've not read this book. It looks really interesting. Yeah, it was hugely helpful to me. Um, several things, that story about letting people in and you have the choice of whether you let them in or not. And also look at the things that you can change and do your utmost to change them to what you want them to be. And look at the things that you can't change and accept them. And yeah. that helped me in my most difficult time um, towards the end at Mauritius uh, to learn to identify things that I can't control and accept them and work with them in my life, even though I don't necessarily want them. Yeah. Yeah. Good advice. Yeah. This sounds like a very interesting book. I'll look it up myself and mm. I'd like to read it because uh, I haven't had anybody recommend that book before. Right. So. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's a bit, uh, hyperbole, but it saved yeah. my life. Wow. Well, that's quite a statement. It saved your life. Wow. That's a yeah. very powerful um, book. 
I don't know if it's powerful for everybody, but it was exactly yeah. the book I needed at exactly the time I needed at it. At that time. Yeah. And it, it gave me that patience and acceptance to get through a very difficult time for myself. Right. Um, so I'm not saying to anybody this is going to change your life, but I am saying it saved mine. Yes, for sure. Yeah, Jason, as we move forward in the interview, I want to ask you five quick answer questions. So just 30-second answers are perfect. The first one is this. Who is one person who has been a powerful mindfulness influence in your life? Ooh, I've got no idea. It probably would be Buwa. Okay. But that's maybe cheating because it's me. But actually, <laughs> Buwa is a creation of both me and my wife or my okay. ex-wife. Uh -huh. So Buwa's personality was an incredible calming influence on me. And Buwa's personality rubbed off on me. And Buwa is a deeply, deeply kind, generous, thoughtful and mindful character. And I think I came out of the Buwa and Kuala experience more mindful, more thoughtful and more caring. Well, that makes sense. It really does. does. Doesn't it? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I yeah. also went a bit mad because I thought I was Buwa the blue dog. And that was a bit strange. But yeah. Right, sure. Well, I can imagine after doing that many episodes that you would start to feel like like that. Yeah. Yeah. My second question is about emotions and how mindfulness has helped you to deal with your emotions. Being aware that you can't change something and learning to accept it reduces massively frustration uh, for me. So one thing that I got out of my experience in Mauritius and my depression was that frustration in my life reduced significantly afterwards because I could accept that things move at the speed they move at. If I can't change that speed, then I need to accept that speed. If something I don't appreciate or don't want in my life or happening, if I can't change it, I need to accept it. Um, and reduces stress, stress and reduces frustration. And it's been, it's been, oh, it's been life changing. <laughs> right. Yeah. Let's talk about breathing. Is there a thought that you can share with us about breathing and how maybe that's had an effect on the level of mindfulness in your life? No, the only time I ever focus on my own breathing is when I'm singing. Okay. And what I've, learned from singing is that I've got quite powerful lungs so I can actually get a lot of air in and mm -hmm. sing quite a lot of uh, time without taking another breath so one of the things that I do when I'm singing I'm playing the double bass which is a very energetic instrument yes is learn to breathe incredibly deeply mm -hmm. and that maybe adds to the pleasure of playing the music because I would imagine I'm getting huge hits of oxygen every time I do that I'm sure you are. Yeah. Well, my next two questions were going to be about a book, which you've already talked about. Oh, I'm and sorry. I no, 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 no. Don't be sorry at all. No, no, it's perfectly fine. And uh, an app. Are there? Is there any app that you want to mention that's related to mindfulness? No, I, I don't actually use much in the way of apps. I spend an awful lot of time listening to music as you would mm -hmm. expect. So um, I'm not particularly recommending Spotify over anybody else. I just happen to have Spotify. And one of the things I love about the, the new world where you access streaming music is that I can explore 
and somebody mentions an artist and you can listen to it. And I remember as a kid having to save up to buy music albums. And if you got it wrong, you were hugely frustrated and disappointed. Uh, unfortunately, at that time, I hadn't read Confucius. So I was still frustrated and annoyed at this kind of thing. Yeah. And yeah, I, I love the I love the aspect of exploring. So it's not necessarily mindful, but it's um, opening my mind to things that I perhaps wouldn't otherwise be hearing. Yeah, well, it's pretty incredible that we live in a world where you can just, in a moment, search for any music, any musician, mm. and and hear what they sound like right away. Yeah, that's that's amazing. It is. Yeah. 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 Well, as we wrap up the interview, Jason, I just want to ask you if you have any final words of advice, because boy, you've had a lot of fascinating experiences and you're a real, uh, you're a real amazing person to talk to. Do you have any final words of advice for our Mindful Tribe listeners? Um, yeah, I think uh, within the CaliCube team, we talk a lot about moving forward step by step and not getting overwhelmed. Uh, I tend to want to do everything immediately. That's my nature. And that can stress other people out. And what we now talk about a great deal is let's move forward step by step with our own projects, make sure our projects all uh, fit into the overall puzzle of what we're trying to achieve at CaliCube. Everybody pulls their way, everyone moves forwards, and there is no point in getting annoyed with somebody because they're not moving as fast as you would like. You need to better to encourage them to, to, to move forward and help them to move forward. Um, so, yeah, uh, I, I'm enjoying team life. Um, and it's really, really delightful because it's the first time in my life that I'm, I feel the team in this way. And yet, when I'm in a music group, I'm in a team. When I was doing Buwa and Kuala, it was a team with my ex-wife, my daughter, and the people we were working on the animations for. And this is the first time where I've really explicitly thought I'm going to build a team as opposed to a team coming together naturally. Well, it's really fascinating talk to, to talk to you. And I want to ask you one final question before mm. we say goodbye. And that is, where did you get the name CaliCube? K-A-L-I-C-U-B-E. Where did you get that name? There was a lot of thought that went into that um, a lot of a lot of ideas and thinking and the idea at the end of the day is cali quality q okay. solid and the other thing is i'm in france and qualité and cube uh, quality and cube so it's a name that works in both languages okay. it's also unique which makes it easier for branding and then we created this falcon logo with lots of color and the idea is the the quality is solid with the cube and the falcon soars and flies free as a bird with your data and our ideas to educate this child that is google or something along those lines <laughs> not quite sure where, where i was going with that it's been really awesome to talk to you jason thank you so much for being on mindfulness mode that was absolutely brilliant bruce thank you so much <laughs> you're welcome bye now Bye-bye. 
Hey, Mindful Tribe. Thanks for listening today to Mindfulness Mode. I want to thank my sponsor, Athletic Greens, and also one of my other sponsors I want to mention today is Grammarly. I do quite a bit of writing, as you probably know, and Grammarly helps me by quickly pointing out spelling or grammatical errors. It helps me to to write faster and more accurately. You can get started with Grammarly for free. Grammarly works in desktop applications. It works on sites across the web, on apps, social media, documents, messages, even emails. You can use my affiliate link and get going right away. And by using my link, it will benefit me. And at the same time, you get to try Grammarly for free. Here's the link. It's mindfulnessmode.com slash Grammarly. And that's G-R-A-M-M-A-R-L-Y. And with that, take what we've learned today to reach new heights of calm, focus, and happiness. Stay in the mode.